everybody. Welcome back to episode number 1717 of Woe is Media. Lisa and Annabelle, your hosts here with some more stories to discuss that happened this week. Alyssa, what have you got on the docket for us? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was my cue to start talking. So today I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite authors. He recently did a interview with CBS Sunday morning and just talked about like his writing process and his love for his mama, because in honor of this past father's day, you know, he didn't grow up with a father in his life. So his mom played both roles and we love that. Other than that, my pride project for this week, I hope Annabella is going to be really excited because I'm actually talking about a tennis player this week. Wow. Okay. That's exciting. I did it for you, BB. Oh, I love that. Love me some tennis. That's awesome. Um, I have a couple of stories. The first is on our favorite Federal Reserve Chairman, Jay Powell. Jay Powell! Oh, we're going to talk a little bit more about him and what's going on with inflation, whether or not you should panic. The answer is no. <laughs> I will, I'll just spoil that now. You should not panic, but we're going to talk a little bit more about it. Uh, and then my second second story, excuse me, is a little bit more of, um, it's not exactly in line with the Pride project that I had done previously, but it has some Pride elements to it. Um, and it's about a certain um, women's lingerie and underwear brand that is getting a major makeover and why that is a positive thing for all women. <laughs> I feel like I know who you're talking about. I think you do too. <laughs> we'll get into that one later. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm off? starting off this week. And my first story is very short. It's honestly something that I saw this morning. It just kind of made my heart melt a little bit. So this past Sunday, Stephen King sat down for an interview in his home of Bangor, Maine with anchor Jane Polly and just talked about, you know, his life, his legacy, and his mama. We That's important. We love a mama's boy. So basically his mother's name was Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King. And she raised Stephen and I believe just one sibling, one brother by herself from the time Stephen was two up until the end of her life. Um, Stephen's father dipped out when he was about two and he said that he had no known memories of him. And he's like, That's fine, you know no hard feelings. My mom was there whenever I needed her. And it was really sweet because he revealed that around the time that he started drafting his first novel in the seventies, his mother actually was diagnosed with uterine cancer. Oh, yes. That's awful. Absolutely. And as we all know, or most of us know, I, I would, I have an expansive collection of Stephen King in my apartment. Um, but his first novel was Carrie smash hit. And at the time of Carrie's hardback advanced copies release, um, they weren't really seeing much traction with the sales because you, as many people would know that are book buyers, most people buy paperback just because of the convenience, the weight, as well as the price is normally a little bit cheaper than hardbacks. So they weren't expecting much after the hardback advance, but they were absolutely surprised by the paper advance advac copies of Carrie. And it totaled about $400,000 in 1974. 
It's pretty good for the time. Absolutely. Well, yes. really, if you make that much off one book sale anyway, that's a, mm-hmm. it's a good chunk of change. And you're first. Yeah, so. absolutely. So he and his brother had many talks after coming into contact with all of this money from the advanced sales. And they decided that they were going to use all of this, from what I can understand, all of this money, all of the 400,000-ish dollars, and surprise their mother so she could quit her job and focus on recuperating during her cancer battle. So he said, I know, right? I just like, I was like melting while reading this book because I, I realized that Stephen King has his own faults, like many people do, but he has given me such joy in um, my literary journey, if you will. Um, My cat's literally named after a Stephen King character. So (laughs) take from that what you will. But anyways, his mother at the time of Carrie's advanced copies was working in an assisted care facility, I believe for um, mental health patients. And the poor woman on the day that they approached her, they came to her work with the copy of the book. And they said that she was stoned out of her mind on pain medication because she was, she was hurting so much that she had to take all of this medication in order just to like get through her day. And they were like, mom, this is for you. We want you off your feet and we want you at home. And she was just like in tears, just like bawling at work. And they took her home and made sure she was like comfortable and ready to deal with whatever life was going to throw at her. Um, Sadly, she did succumb to her battle of cancer in 1973 before the initial release of Carrie at the age of either 59 or 60, I saw uh, disputing reports, but around that age, Carrie was released a year after his mother Nellie's death. And it was King's first novel, as we mentioned before, and was adapted for the screen two years after its initial release. It was directed by Brian De Palma and starred my queen, Sissy Spacek. I don't know if you know this, Annabelle, but I love me some Sissy Spacek. I don't think I knew that, but she is quite the actress. She's a badass bitch. We love her. (laughs) Um, The movie itself earned $33.8 million in worldwide box office. Not too shabby. And it also spawned um, a sequel that came out in the 90s, which not worth watching, but you know, to each their own. And also made a remake in 2013 starring Chloe Grace Moretz. And fun fact, that was the first R-rated film that I was ever allowed to see in theaters by myself. Nice. That's so I have, I have a very deep connection to Carrie. I love the book. I love the original movie. The remake wasn't great. But I actually remember um, <laughs> the night we went to see it. You know, when you're like 17 and you got that license, you're so proud of yourself and they didn't card me at the box office. And I was like, don't, don't you want to see it though? Are you disappointed? And no, like I literally shoved it at them. I was like, you're going to see this. (laughs) And this poor, like 21 year old, like worker was like, I girl, yeah, you're 17 go like, just get out of my face. (laughs) So that's a fun time after the release. After the release of Carrie, Stephen and his family moved to Boulder, Colorado, where he later wrote 1977's The Shining at the Stanley Hotel. Also, fun fact, you know, may not be necessarily a character, but 
basically is in Stephen King lore. And my son Stanley is around here somewhere. He's probably sleeping. But anyways, Stephen King was mostly on this interview to talk about his latest uh, book to screen adaptation, which is Lizzie's Story, which is currently streaming on Apple TV Plus, and it stars Julianne Moore. He has said on record that Lizzie's Story is one of, if not his favorite novel that he has ever written. It's basically about a widow of a horror writer, fun stories all around, that is being pursued by a stalker. And it sounds really interesting. I didn't know much about Lizzie's story because unfortunately it's not one of the more well-known Stephen King books. But now that I know that it's one of his favorites that he's ever written, I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, It's executive produced by J.J. Abrams, which is really cool. And the end of the interview, like really just, you know, gave me such hope and heart. Like I said, once again, this past Father's Day, while we love all fathers, you know, out there that have actually like given their all to their children and not their children, just people that they love dearly, you know, some people don't have fathers in their lives right. like Stephen did. Yes. And he said about his mother, quote, my mom gave me room to be what I wanted to be. She didn't laugh about the ambition to write stories. And I love that because yeah. he knew basically from the time he was young that he wanted to be a writer even to this day like in the interview he mentioned that he writes every single day like Jane Polly was like so you you wrote today and he was like yeah before you came over (laughs) (laughs) so she was like oh okay and he was like yeah I just finished a novel (laughs) just casually dropping that in the conversation and Jane Polly's just like oh all right (laughs) and also Before I end, if you've never seen what Stephen King's uh, mansion in Bangor, Maine looks like, go look it up because it's literally where I want to retire. All right, let me Google this. It's like spider web gates and little like um, gargoyles on the fence outside of it. It's very like Victorian mansion kind of thing. I want to go there one day just so I can like visit and take a tour of the town because obviously most of his uh, books take place in Maine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's oh, my wow. first story. It is spooky. Yeah, he has like bats on the on the gate. That's what I'm saying, man. I want to go. Yeah, that's pretty. That seems very appropriate for an author of horror books. Mm-hmm. I like it. I also like that he was able to, and that he was generous enough to help his mom with like his first success. I understand that obviously when you are diagnosed with cancer, like the clock is ticking and you don't necessarily know how much time you have. It could have been multiple years. It could have been a few months, like who knows? Um, I don't know what her diagnosis was, but he very easily could have been like, no, this is my big break. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to sit on this and you know what I make from the next one, I'll put toward my mother. Exactly. Like you got the next one, mom, but he he had a good sense of urgency and, you know, was able to help her in her last, you know, amount of time on earth. And, you know, she clearly was deeply moved by that. So that's a cool story. I'm sure she's so proud of him. I know. So much success. <laughs> but yeah, that's my first story. Very nice. All right. So for my first story, um, our boy Jay gave a pow to stocks last week. That is oh, my yeah, uh, pow in the negative way. Like he knocked him out and he knocked him way down. <laughs> so is that good for us? Not if you're invested. 
but it's okay, okay. to pop back up today. So as it always does. I'm revoking that ooh-wee. Well, it's, you know, market volatility. It's <laughs> up and down all the time. But um, last Wednesday, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, Jay Powell, as we fondly refer to him on this podcast, he said that they considerably raised for inflation this year, and he moves up the time frame for when the Federal Reserve expects to raise rates. So initially, the thought had been that rate hikes would come in 2024, which is obviously three years from now. He said, we're thinking it could potentially happen as soon as 2023. And investors panicked because if the Fed raises interest rates, it means that people cannot borrow money as cheaply and it makes mm-hmm. stocks less attractive to invest in because you can get higher returns on safer commodities and assets like debt products and corporate treasuries and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so there's a big stock sell off and that's why he gave a pow to stocks um, last week. But the Fed this week, they didn't touch interest rates yet. All they did was they moved up the timeline potentially of when they would have to raise them again. And they increase expectations for how high they think inflation is going to get this year. So the Fed this week, they unanimously decided to leave interest rates at near zero. So nothing changed for the immediate term with interest rates. Um, But it raises inflation expectations to 3.4%. So they expect things to increase in price by 3.4% as opposed to its 2.2% March inflation expectation. So fairly significant increase, depending on what you're buying. Obviously, the more expensive the product, the bigger that percentage is going to matter because you're going to end up paying more out of pocket. Yeah. Um, And the Fed still maintains that inflationary pressures are transitory because of all the economic reopenings. There's very little restrictions on anything, even some of the most, like, conservative states in terms of how they've been treating COVID protocols, like California. California is reopened now. Um, A lot of places have kind of done away with mandatory masks, things like that. So the reopening is obviously well underway and going to continue to help economic recovery. But that is why we're seeing inflation pressures, because there's such a high demand for goods and services right now. Yes. Um, So prices have experienced kind of the biggest rise in 13 years which obviously we've never been through a pandemic, at least in our living lives. If anyone was around during the 1918 influenza and was listening to this podcast, we applaud you for surviving not one, but two pandemics. I was about to say my great grandmother, but she's listening from her grave. So people who may no longer be with us. Yes. as well. Um, so biggest price rise in 13 years. Um, it's been suggested that the Fed may raise interest rates twice in 2023. That's not certainly uncommon either. Um, and the whole reason that the Fed raises interest rates, remember, is it's what they call a hawkish action, which means it's more of a tightening of monetary policy and they want to make sure the economy doesn't get overheated, which it's very hot right now because of all the demand for goods and services. That's why we're seeing the inflation. So it's kind of a way to like cool it down. It's like okay. breaker kind of. Um, so they're potentially are going to do two rate hike increases in 2023. And in a lot of respects, the U.S. economy is growing at its fastest rate since World War II. So we obviously know that was a huge impact on the economy because you had all of these women entering the workforce while a lot of the men were away on the battlefields or, you know, working with the war effort. 
So the women picked up a lot of the slack, which was great. And it kind of led to more of a structural shift in the economy because a lot of women didn't want to go back necessarily to that time where they were just hanging out at home, being homemakers. Um, There was kind of a push for that in the 1950s, as we saw. But uh, as we saw, I say that like we were alive. We were nowhere near alive in 1950. We were there in spirit. (laughs) Well, we've looked back on it and we were like, ooh, poodle skirts um, and sock hops. Racism, ew. But staying at home, maybe not. Yeah, we'll see. Some of us want to work, but if you don't want to work, that's okay too. Um, Anyway, besides the point. So that was obviously a big shift and big growth for the American economy. And we're currently in another period just like that. but even with the raise and expected inflation, the Fed maintains that their target inflation rate, 2%, is what they're going to hit in the long run. They okay. are very adamant that a lot of this inflation is currently temporary, and it'll you'll start to see things come back down a little bit, um, barring any other major issues that you know would affect the economy at, at large. Um, Jay Powell said progress toward the Fed's dual employment and inflation goals is happening faster than expected. So inflation is obviously coming up, like I just said, but employment is also coming back up to speed with what it was before pre-pandemic levels, not quite to where it was before, but it's certainly getting better. Um, There's a huge demand in the labor market right now. I feel like every grocery store, restaurant, coffee shop, I see they all have like help wanted signs. So yeah, there's definitely a big demand for that right now because a lot of those businesses had to lay off people because- they either weren't open or they just couldn't afford to keep all of those people on staff. And now there's a big demand and they're reopening. So yes. they need those workers back. Um, so all that is going on. Uh, Jay Powell expects to see 7% GDP growth in 2021, which is exciting. Um, that's a pretty big growth number. He also says that factors that were affected by the pandemic more heavily, so like travel and tourism, stuff like that, they're improving, but they still remain weak. So he expects those to kind of come around the bend a little bit more as well. The unemployment estimates right now are around 4.5%. So it was a little north of 3%, I believe, before the pandemic started. So for it to be 4.5%, you know, that's obviously still millions of people out of work, but it is significantly lower than where it was around like the 9% rate, you know, kind of at the peak of the pandemic. So all positive trends for sure. Um, But also kind of leading to the stock sell-off that caused investors to really freak out was, so the Federal Reserve is made up of 12 regional banks that are located in major cities around the United States. Um, There's one in Atlanta, there is one in DC, there's one, up in um, New York, there's one in St. Louis, you know, like pretty much a lot of the St. Louis. Yeah, well, they have to have representation in the Midwest. I guess. You know, it's not just it's not just the East Coast in California. What about Texas? <laughs> well, there is one in Texas. Oh, okay, cool. I <laughs> Sorry. I, I think it's in Dallas. I didn't like have all of the listings in my notes um, because I mainly just you know, they, they, they work collectively. It doesn't matter kind of on the day-to-day basis, like what the individual banks are doing. But No, you're fine. I'm just being bitter. And like, <laughs> I know St. Louis is a big city. I'm not trying to discredit that, but like 
Also, when I think of bigger metropolitan areas in the United States, it's not one of the first ones that I think of. So sure. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Like it's they don't have an NFL team anymore because they went oh. to <laughs> um let's see. There's the federal bank. Uh let me just okay. I'm just gonna go ahead and split this out while I have it pulled up for okay. what the 12 federal reserve banks are. I could get this web page to load. Sorry about this. She's Rough working shirt. hard, guys. Give her give her a round of applause. Okay. There is one in Boston, New okay. York City, Philadelphia, Cleveland. Sorry. I know. <laughs> Richmond. Richmond, Virginia. Atlanta. Richmond, Texas. <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis. Kansas City, Dallas, there's your Texas one. Okay. And San Francisco. So excuse me, I misspoke earlier. There is no DC bank, which makes sense because everything else for the federal government happens in DC. So they're also not a state, so they don't really need one. Um, Fair enough. Anyway, but the the Federal Reserve is made up of those 12 regional banks um, and they have voting members on the Federal Open Market Committee who kind of vote on what's going to happen with interest rates. Um, And on Friday, the St. Louis Federal Reserve President, James Bullard, says that he sees an initial interest rate increase happening as soon as 2022. So he doesn't really think the 2023 timeline is all that realistic. He thinks it's going to happen sooner. Um, And he says it's natural to kind of take a more hawkish view to contain inflationary pressures, which is obviously what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And he says, overall, it is good news because of the labor market improving, but it could lead to more upward pressures on pricing. So you could see, could see, you know, continual increases on what you're going to have to buy. Um, so it should be noted that, like, while he's a big deal because he's a Fed president, he's not currently a voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee. Okay. But he will get a vote in 2022. So the way that it works is there are seven members of the board of government of the Federal Reserve and the New York president and four of the 11 remaining regional presidents. So not all 12 regional banks get a vote at the same time. It rotates. So St. Louis is currently an alternate. They don't, so someone on the voting committee is not there, then one of the alternates would be able to fill in and vote for them. But it's four of the 11 and it rotates on an annual basis. So banks who are currently voting will not be able to vote next year. Banks that are not voting this year will be able to vote next year and so on and so forth. Um, So that's kind of how it works. And he's kind of warning of volatility ahead because of all the economic uncertainty and he fully expects policies to be in flux. Um, So again, like I said, there's not necessarily like I mean, there's there's a lot of good reason to be optimistic. There's not really a reason to panic, in my opinion, especially as kind of an individual consumer. If you're invested, um, I would encourage you to kind of not pay too much attention to the day-to-day market volatility because you want to look more at the long picture and what you your investment goals are. If you're trying to save for retirement and you were around a listener's age in your 20s, you do not need to panic about the day-to-day stuff. Um, if anything... The day-to-day major drops are the times to buy stocks because they have been red hot, but when they drop, obviously they are worth less and you can acquire them for more cheaper, more cheaply, excuse me. And yeah, that, that will save you money and is a good um, way to go. So 
yeah, that's that's pretty much what I have on this. It tanks stocks, like I said, because investors like low rates and it makes it cheap for everyone to borrow and it makes stocks more attractive than government bonds when rates are really low because their rate of return is higher. So stocks last week had their worst week since October 2020. The Dow fell 3.5% um, and the S&P 500 fell 1.9%. Mm. So pretty significant drops, but as of today, it was up 600 points, the Dow was. So hmm. there's, there's always a rebound. That's what I'm saying. There's always going to be volatility. Not, not a lot of reason panic, in my opinion. The Fed is taking ample action to make sure they know what's going on and are monitoring appropriately. So that's my first story. We, we trust In J-Pow, we trust. In J-Pow, we trust. Can we get him on this podcast one day? Like, I'll contact him. We'll see. That'd what be we so much fun. Yeah. Like he's basically a reoccurring character at this point. Yeah. Be like, hey man, we're big fans. Do you have time? <laughs> we know you're like slightly busy, but you can make time. You can do it. Absolutely. Okay. So today's Pride Project, as I mentioned before, I am talking about a tennis player. But first, I would like to ask Annabelle, are you familiar? Sorry, there was just like an explosion outside my door. Yikes. I think it was like the garbage truck, but it was just like right when I stopped. Okay, anyways, Annabelle, have you heard of Renee Richards? Yes, I think so. (gasps) Yay. Okay, so Renee Richards is one of the first and most well-known transgender athletes. And she is responsible for a lot of like progress when it comes to uh, transgender individuals um, in major sports. And I know that's been a very big topic of discussion lately. So I thought this would kind of be cool to like bring back because everything about her story happened in the Mm seventies. So, you know, it's been almost 50 years. And I would just like to take a moment to talk about her. Now, I will say, I'm going to say right off the bat, um, Renee Richards is a transgender woman. And I will be referring to her by she, her pronouns throughout this story. But I will be mentioning her birth slash dead name at the very beginning, but that's it. Uh, The rest of the story, I will be referring to her as Renee or Miss Richards. So she is. Yes. So starting that off the bat. Renee Richards was born as Richard Raskin on August 19th, 1934 in New York City. So we love a Leo. Of course. She was raised in Forest Hill, Queens, and her father was an orthopedic surgeon, and her mother was one of the first female psychiatrists in the United States. Ooh, okay. Another trailblazer in the family. Heck yeah. In addition to being a Columbia University professor. Wow. Smart woman. I know, right? She she definitely came from wealth and she uh, she benefited from that privilege, but I digress. She attended Horace Mann School and played wide receiver for the football team. She also was a pitcher for the baseball team and led that team to an invitation or sorry, that position led her to be um, offered an invitation to join the New York Yankees, but she wanted to focus on tennis. Wow. Okay. I respect it. Turning down the pinstripes to play tennis. I love it. 
it, it goes without saying she was also on the tennis team at this time. And she was also <laughs> on the swim team. Wow. Multifaceted so athlete. She was all over the place. Um, also interesting fact that I just recently learned. Um, I listened to a SVU recap podcast, mm-hmm. um, in my spare time, it's called, um, that's messed up. And it's by the same people, um, that do my favorite murder. So if anyone's interested, but the girls take an episode of SVU and then talk about the crime that is based off of. And recently that they did a story that was about, um, sexual misconduct allegations at the Horace Mann school. Okay. So I'm not trying to say like fun fact, but like, if that's something that you're interested in reading more about, if you're not triggered by that, I would definitely suggest it. Cause I did after I listened to that episode and I went back and it was very enlightening. Anyways, Renee went on to attend Yale university. Go Bulldogs. Hell yeah. She was captain of the men's tennis team at the time and was considered one of the best college tennis players in the country. Wow. Yes. Very impressive. She later attended the University of Rochester Medical Center, specializing in ophthalmology. I had to practice saying that a couple of times. (laughs) She graduated in 1959 and served a two-year internship at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. She later had a two-year residency at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital, which, no shade to that hospital, but you couldn't think of a more exciting name. It's a little boring. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, surely they've changed it between now and then. Or something. Yeah. I was like, surely they've changed it between now and then, but no, it is still Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital whatever. I'm not on board. They're very, they're all business. Yes. (laughs) They don't have a social media presence. Watch they do. And they come for us anyways, while she was in her residency at our favorite hospital, she played competitive tennis and ranked sixth out of 20 males over 35. How did she manage to be a medical resident and and play like pro tennis that's what I kept wondering I was like damn girl you just out here in the streets just like balling on every single level those are both extremely physically taxing Mm -hmm. activities obviously one because it's a sport and the other one because doctors are on their feet a lot of the time absolutely and it's a lot of mental game too Mental exhaustion yeah and if they were doing anything physical with the patients yeah that'd that'd be tiring Well, you're going to love this next part because after her residency, she joined the Navy. Wow. Okay. So she just was very achievement oriented, clearly. Yes. Uh, She continued her medical training while in the Navy and continued to play tennis. Can't stop, won't stop. Ever. Um, She won both singles and doubles at the All-Navy Championship with her signature left-hand serve. And ranked as high as fourth in her region. Very nice. So I love it. Also, if I say anything wrong about like tennis terminology, Annabelle has all rights to call me out because she Ah. (laughs) very frequently and I know nothing about tennis. So now when Renee was in college, she dressed in women's clothing, which at the time, you know, according to the sex that she was assigned at birth, it was kind of seen as a perversion. It wasn't technically like just a personal preference. Like people assumed that she was a pervert and that's not the case at all. Right. 
trans issues at the time were classified as a form of insanity, which it's, it's kind of the same, not, not necessarily the same, but kind of on the same wavelength as, you know, individuals who identified as gay were seen as mentally ill, which obviously we know is not the case for LGBTQ individuals, any of them. Mm -hmm. Anyways, she chose the name Renee because it is French for reborn. Ooh, okay. I like the symbolism. Yeah, very nice. I love that. So her gender identity crisis obviously created sexual confusion, depression, and suicidal tendencies. And she sought help from Dr. Charles Illenfeld, I believe. And he was a disciple of Harry Benjamin, who was very, very well known in the endocrinology, trans issues, and sexual reassignment fields. Okay. And she began receiving hormone injections at the request of Dr. Illenfeld. In 1960, she traveled to Europe as a woman, like presenting herself to people as a woman, I believe for the first time that I could find. And she intended to visit chart, excuse me. She intended to visit Georges Bureau to discuss a sex reassignment surgery, but decided against it and later returned to New York. Now, just to give you an idea, Bureau also worked with April Ashley, who was a famous English model and restaurant hostess who was involved in a landmark case called Corbett versus Corbett. And basically this case was about, um, April Ashley was a trans woman who was married to a cis man Mm -hmm. and her husband sought a marriage dismissal on the grounds that April was quote unquote, a man, despite having undergone gender reassignment surgery. Gotcha. Also a very interesting case to look into. April Ashley is still with us to this day and which I, I'm always astounded, you know, with individuals like Renee Richards and April Ashley, you know, trans icons that are still with us today who have gone through the 20th century and lived through it to be able to tell their story. I'm just blown away by them. And I love listening to what they have to say about past as well as modern trans issues. Yeah. I have a lot of perspective for sure going through how it used to be perceived, how it currently is perceived and like the rights or lack thereof that the trans community has. Absolutely, yes. In June of 1970, Renee married model Barbara Mole or Mole, I believe it's Mole. Um, They had a son together. He was born in 1972, his name is Nicholas, but they ended up divorcing in 1975. In the early 1970s, Renee ultimately uh, decided to undergo reassignment surgery, and she was referred to surgeon Roberto C. Granata Sr. by Harry Benjamin, the individual we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. She, su- she successfully transitioned in 1975 and began working as an ophthalmologist in practice with another doctor in Newport Beach, California. Nice. It was awesome. After she moved to California, she began playing in regional competitions for her local tennis club under the name Renee Clark. And in summer of 1976, she entered the La Jolla Tennis Tournament Championships, and she absolutely crushed. Like, she was killing it, obviously. Once again, her unique left-hand serve was recognized by Bob Perry, who was a UCLA tour player at the time. And her friend, Jean Scott, invited her to play in his Tennis Week 
open in South Orange, New Jersey. So she's going back over to the East Coast for a second. Mm-hmm. But USTA and the WTA withdrew their sanctions for the Tennis Week Open and organized another tournament after it was made known that Renee would be participating in this tournament. 25 out of 32 participants also withdrew from the Tennis Week Open in 19 or at the time. And in 1976, she was outed by a local TV anchor named Richard Carlson, who, fun fact, is Tucker Carlson's dad. I was going to say, is there any relation? Yep. There is. Wow. Okay. He Um, outed her as a trans woman. Yes. On national, well, not national television, but like television. And that's why all those people dropped out of the tournament. Yeah. Because they didn't think it was fair because they thought they were quote unquote playing against a man. As far as I can tell. Now, maybe, you know, obviously how transgender people appear is none of our business, yeah. you know, to the outside world. And if you identify as a woman, you are a woman. Like we're just, we're going to get that out right here. That's how we feel on this podcast. Yes. But you know, may, there may have been an instance where they were in the same room as Renee and may have assumed things about her gender identity. Sure. Um, but as far as I could tell, I think they were tipped off by Richard Carlson. Gotcha. Okay. So, but yeah, I just wanted to let that be known here on this podcast. We love trans individuals and we care about them because they deserve rights just like cis people. And we will call you whatever you want. Absolutely. Yes. Subsequently, the United States Tennis Association, the Women's Tennis Association, and the United States Open Committee began requiring that all female competitors verify their sex with what's called the bar body test of their chromosomes. Now, are you familiar with this? No, but it sounds kind of gross. It is. So I had to educate myself on this. A bar body is an inactive X chromosome that is obviously in a cell with more than one X chromosome. So women, people that are born as female. Sure. Cause men have an X or males have X and Y and women have two X. This, a bar body is rendered inactive in a process called lionization in species with X and Y sex determination. Okay. So the bar body only appears in individuals that are born female. Gotcha. Once again, if you identify as a woman, you are a woman. You are a woman. If you identify as a man, you are a man. We're not looking at your chromosomes. If you identify as both or neither, we respect that and we will call you what you want. Anyways, sorry. Just making it make you know, That's I know this so is so invasive. I know, right? Like genetic testing for tennis. Are you kidding me? Just so people can swat a ball between the net. Sorry, I'm not trying to degrade your sport, but, but no, I mean it, it's I mean, it's like I don't know. It's one thing to drug test, but it's another thing to how were you born? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's excessive in my opinion. Yes. So Renee applied to play in the U.S. Open as a woman in 1966, but refused to take this test and thus was not allowed to complete in the Open, Wimbledon, or the Italian Open that summer. Mm-hmm. She filed a lawsuit with the USTA that runs the U.S. Open in New York State Court, alleging discrimination by gender in violation of the New York Human Rights Law. And she began participating in the... she 
she stated that participating in this tournament would constitute the acceptance of her gender and quote, right to be a woman, unquote. USTA members, quote unquote, worried that others would undergo the gender reassignment surgery to enter women's tennis, very similar to that stupid ass argument that we're hearing nowadays about transgender uh, female athletes. Um, Having an unfair advantage. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into depth about how I feel about all of these into this, the fight surrounding transgender athletes, but I personally believe that transgender athletes should have the same rights as cisgender athletes. And I'm going to leave it at that. Retweet. So anyways, <laughs> Sports Illustrated referred to Renee Richards as quote unquote, an extraordinary spectacle, which is highly offensive. I was going to say, she's not like a zoo animal. Exactly. She's a person and you should refer to her as such. And they characterized reactions to her from other outside individuals as, quote, varying from astonishment to suspicion, sympathy, resentment, and more often than that, utter confusion. Once again, she is a person, not a circus attraction. I can't believe that they thought people would undergo gender reassignment surgery, which is a very time-consuming and I would guess painful and expensive and invasive and taxing process just so they can play a sport Mm -hmm. I yeah that's um you could just take steroids I mean I don't like (laughs) the cis hats or you know you could practice harder I I mean I I love Annabelle she's a cis hat but the cis hats (laughs) (laughs) okay so the usoc stated quote there is a competitive advantage for a male who has undergone a sex change surgery as a result of physical training and development as a male and this is their opinion once again not ours at this time renee agreed to take the bar body test but the test results proved ambiguous and she refused to retake it and was barred from play once again On August 16th, 1977, three days before her 34th birthday, Judge Alfred M. Asione Asione, ruled in Richard's favor, saying, quote, this person is now female, unquote, and forcing her to pass the bar body test was, quote, grossly unfair, discriminatory, and inequitable, and a violation of her rights, unquote. Good. He further ruled that USTA intentionally discriminated against Richard's and in my notes, I just said, duh, bish. <laughs> and granted her an injunction against the USTA and USOC, which allowed her to play in the US Open. She lost to Virginia Wade in the first round of the singles competition, but did make it to the finals in doubles. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to get into her tennis career post these proceedings. She played professionally from 1977 until 1981, ranking as high as 20th overall in the country in February of 1979. Her highest ranking was at the end of the, at the end of 1977 was 22nd, I believe. Her first professional event as a, a woman by society standards anyway, was the 1977 US Open. Once again, she reached doubles final with Betty Ann Grubb-Stewart and lost to Marina Navratilova and Betty Stove. 
She won the 35 and over women's single in 1979. She was twice a semifinalist in mixed doubles with Elie Nastasi. And she later coached Martina Navratilova to two Wimbledon wins. Very nice. Yes. She was inducted in the USTA Eastern Tennis Hall of Fame in 2000. On August 2nd, 2013, she was among the first class of inductees into the National Gay and Lesbian Sports Hall of Fame. Nice. She has since, and this is, this is kind of sad because um, I'll get into it in a second, but there is a film that was a documentary that was made about uh, Renee. And I remember watching it when I was in high school and the end of it kind of ended on this um, she has since expressed ambivalence about her legacy as a trans icon. She believes her past as a man provided her with more advantages over competitors, which it's, it's very confusing. And this is obviously, you know, her journey. This is her story and we can have opinions on it, but at the end of the day, our opinions. Her life. Yeah. Yes. She says, quote, having lived for the past 30 years, I know if I'd had surgery at the age of 22 and then at 24 went on the tour, no genetic woman in the world would have been able to come close to me. And so I've reconsidered my opinion, unquote. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. She retired at the age of 47 after four years of professional play, returning to medical practice and moved to Park Avenue in New York. She, right. <laughs> she became a surgeon director of ophthalmology and head of eye, the eye muscle clinic at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital, our favorite. Mm-hmm. She served on the editorial board of the Journal of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus, I believe is that how you say that. And she now lives in a small town north of New York City with her friend Arlene Larzalaire. And this is a platonic companion that we know of, like no, no romantic affiliation. In 2014, a wooden racket used by her was donated to the National Museum of American History as part of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. In 1983, she published her autobiography called Second Serve. I like it. Right? Which was then uh, kind of adapted into a 1986 made-for-TV movie starring Vanessa Redgrave, if you remember her from our past past podcast episodes Mm -hmm. um in 2007 her second autobiography called no way renee the second Uh half of my notorious life was released and once again she expresses regret over fame that came with her transition and also stated in 2007 that she did not regret undergoing the process in and of itself so she has complex feelings about it as well she just didn't want to be famous and felt that maybe it did give her a competitive advantage in tennis. I believe so. And in 2011, like I mentioned before, a documentary called Renee is made and it's one of the anchor films at the 2011 Tribeca Film Festival and premiered on ESPN on my birthday in 2011, which was October 4th, if anyone doesn't know, I'm a Libra. And I'm, I'm gonna end on this, but when I was watching the film, when I was in high school, I tried to find it now and I had to pay for it. So I didn't, but, um, it's, it was kind of sad how it ended because it seems, although she lives with a friend, she lives a very kind of lonely life. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't believe at the time of the documentary's, um, inception that she was in contact with her son and she, that's where she seemed to have the most regrets because she, 
kind she kind of implied that her relationship with her son was kind of ruined by all the publicity that came with her transition, which is so sad because, you know, like they should be able to handle that on their own time and by themselves and not have to have the, the public eyes angle on it as well. Yeah, of course. She is still with us to this day. I believe she's going to turn 87 in August. Um, Yes. Mm -hmm. And yes, that is the story of Renee Richards. Wow. 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 I don't know why I pulled an Owen Wilson there. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, that's that's definitely a cool story. Um, obviously, I enjoy the tennis element of it, but I was looking her up while you were talking and looking at her kind of results. Um, it looks like she really, in terms of the, the major tennis tournaments, there are four. There's only one in the U.S. and the other ones are international. It looks like she only played in the U.S. ones, and I don't know if that has to do with her transitioning I don't know if like because they're run by different different governments yeah. so I don't know if it was like a regulatory thing or if she just like didn't have any interest in playing over there I don't know but um also a great yeah. point yeah very cool life though for sure and I'm um certainly glad that she was brave enough to share her story with everything that she went through and you know hopefully she inspired some people in the trans community to do what they feel like they need to do also, sorry, I'm going to throw this back in there. Um, did you see that a transgender athlete actually uh, made it to the Olympic trials? Like, um, is going to Tokyo? I did not, actually. That's cool, though. Let me, what sport is it? Uh, you know. Laurel Hubbard, she is the first transgender athlete to compete at the Olympics. I'm sorry, I'm messing all of it up. She's a New Zealand weightlifter. Nice. Okay. So we're really excited for her. Yay. Yes, or I absolutely. believe it. I believe that those are her pronouns. Those are the ones that are being used in this article. So I'm going to say she, yay. We're happy for her. All right. Awesome. So moving on to my second and our final story for the week. Um, Victoria's secret angels have lost their wings. Oh no. <laughs> but you know what? It's for the best and we'll get into why. Yes. So, Victoria's Secret has decided to replace their traditional VS Angels with a new group called the VS Collective. Um, Friendly reminder that Victoria's Secret is owned by parent company L Brands. And this company also owns Bath and Body Works, which is a little bit less, um, you know, offensive is not the right word, but a little bit more, um, a little bit more cozy and a little bit less concerned with um, appearances. Body image, yeah. Um, so they own Bath and Body Works as well. Um, so Victoria's Secret has not been doing super well in recent years. Um, they used to own roughly 32% of the women's underwear market in the U.S. So every one in three pairs is a Victoria's Secret one that you had on your butt. And that is no Me. longer the case. They have 21% of the women's underwear market in the U.S. as of 2020. So the brand has definitely been losing favor. Um, and they've been working very hard to change their brand image. Um, they recently did its first Mother's Day campaign this year, um, where a pregnant woman was kind of on the ad cover for the first time. So oh, wow. I don't know why it took 
that long for them to showcase the pregnant model because pregnant women are also sexy. I underwear and are sexy. Was it yeah. Nick Cannon's latest baby mama? <laughs> I don't think so. Sorry, side note. That's a valid question. <laughs> Did you see that he's going to have his fourth child in a year soon? I did nobody teach that man sex education? Obviously not. Anyways, continue with your lovely story. Yeah, anyway, but no, that's, that's a perfectly valid question and a good joke. I like it. Um, so the brand says that they will no longer sign models based on appearances, which, I mean, yeah, like, okay. Sure, Jan. Sure, Jan. Yeah, you read my mind. I like, there's still a brand and they're trying to sell things and we will get into who is in this vs collective but they are all famous people who are all like conventionally attractive in my opinion so it's not like they're picking up average james off the street but it's supposed to be less about like your curves and you know having the long beach waves and the big smile and everything else that's just like aggressively feminine and sexy that they used to promote correct they said that now they are trying to hire models who have accomplished more in various fields which is cool they're trying to get a little bit more achievement oriented instead of like i said just the looks and the goal is to promote a refreshed brand that is meant to be more diverse and inclusive we love that Yes, we do. CEO Martin Waters says that the company needs to stop thinking about what men want and start thinking about women want. Hell yeah. Says I mean, the man. Duh? I don't. <laughs> yeah, like why, why does that have to be said? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, if you look at like the origin story of Victoria's Secret, it was set up by a man. So men wouldn't feel like creeps for buying women's underwear for their significant others. But like. Oh my God. That's not like plenty of women shop at Victoria's Secret too. And I would go as far to say as they are the, the standard customer in there, at least every time yeah. I've been shopping in there. So yeah, I don't know why that took him that long to say, but to be fair, he did just become CEO in February, 2021. Okay. As, as Victoria's Secret, they tried to sell itself off to a private equity firm for 525 million, but the deal fell through. And as we know, a lot of struggling companies will try and sell themselves off to private equity firms because those people are ruthless and they will get rid of things. They will sell off business units. They will, you know, make it into a whole new company to try and make money off of it. So it definitely shows how desperate they were at the time that they really didn't think they could fix their brand internally and they were trying to sell themselves off. Um, But they seem to have gotten behind the new CEO and have tried to really get down with this new brand. Um, Victoria's Secret is soon going to IPO as its own company, um, not just underneath L Brands, its parent. So that'll be pretty cool. Um, Martin Waters also says that the angels are no longer culturally relevant and Victoria's Secret canceled its annual fashion show a little less than two years ago, um, which, did you ever watch that when it was on? Yes, because I'm gay as hell. Okay, well, that makes sense. (laughs) I... I never watched it because I just knew I would be very like sad afterward. That's fair. And would feel like I just needed to eat like celery for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, see, it would make me hungry. Like I'd be like, look at all these skinny bitches. I'm going to go eat a burger. <laughs> different, different strokes for different folks. Yeah. But, um, Victoria's Secret has faced criticism over the years for promoting kind of traditional, but also in some ways dated ideas of femininity 
and they've made products for a very small range of body types, which we know a lot of our bigger chested friends openly complain about how they cannot find anything at Victoria's Secret that will fit them, um, which that's obviously not a good problem because a lot of people in this world are bigger chested. So also um, as a slightly bigger chested individual, um, anything that they do have in larger sizes is not as cute as what they have in like double A. Like so. there's very limited designs for larger individuals in general, not just bras, but like underwear and lingerie and stuff like that, but. Less, less options to choose from, so. Yes. Victoria's Secret has shut a quarter of their retail stores as of 2020, which we know is not just because of the dying brand, because of COVID, you know, people are going out shopping less. Um, and just in general, like traditional retail on the whole is kind of declining. We know e-commerce is mainly where it's at now. Um, so they've closed a quarter of their stores and they plan to close more stores in 2021, but if you're not selling, you obviously can't keep your doors open. So mm -hmm. definitely not good for them. In 2018, um, L Brands' chief marketing officer said that the annual Victoria's Secret fashion show should not include quote unquote transsexuals, which is an outdated term. We do not call them transsexuals. Um, and this was in 2018 for crying out loud, like, oh my God. And a recent a recency thing and it's there's just no reason to say that and exclude transgender people from your fashion show because you don't feel like it fits your brand yeah screw so, you yeah that's that's obviously part of why they decided to get rid of the fashion show because everyone was like you should not say that that's not okay and rightfully so um but we'll get in now to the lovely ladies who do make up the VS Collective. It's a pretty exciting group, and this is where some of the pride comes in here. Um, so our first woman is Adut Ek. I think I'm saying that right. Um, she is a model. She was born in South Sudan and spent most of her childhood in a Kenyan refugee camp. So Wait, are you talking about Alekwek? No. No? Adut, A-D-U-T. Never mind. Sorry. There's a very famous model named Alekwek, and she's also from Sudan. Sorry. Sorry. No, all good. Um, but she migrated to Australia, and she, so she's kind of an, she claims, I guess, residency in Australia. Um, so she's an Australian model, and she's 21 years old. She's, like, big time in the fashion world. She's done a lot of campaigns. So she is kind of, like, the more traditional model i guess that they would probably hire a victoria's okay. secret at least in the days past but she's obviously beautiful um but it is cool that she is you know a african woman from south sudan and she obviously is not like your standard white blonde bombshell that you know you used to see in a lot of victoria's secret ads so at least some good representation for the continent of africa if nothing else and also australia where she grew um, the second is Amanda de Cadenet. Um, she is a photographer, journalist, journalist, excuse me, startup founder and media personality. She's a British woman. Um, oh, she's yeah. 49 years old. Yes. She's, um, yeah. So she's older, which is cool. Um, and she founded a startup called Girl Gaze, which is kind of like a media company. Um, and yeah, so we like that this woman represents Europe. Um, she is a white woman, so doesn't check kind of the racial minority box, but she is older, which is great. I feel like we saw a lot of people in their mid twenties um, or, you know, just if they were older, it was like, you know, Adriana Lima, like people, mm -hmm. Tyra Banks, people who are not, you know, they don't age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, 
most of us aren't that lucky. Um, our third member is Eileen Gu. She is a freestyle skier in Chinese American. Um, she won three medals in the 2021 X Games debut. That was her first time competing. And she is 17 years old and the youngest Holy! member of the collective. So she has a lot of fight and she's an athlete and in a cool sport. So I think she was born here, but she has Chinese heritage and it, she lives a lot of the time in China and she represents China in sporting events like the X Games. So that's cool that we have somebody that young and who's an athlete, but like a winter athlete, <laughs> like not of that, not a sport that like none of the sports should be sexualized in my opinion, but you know, skiing where you have to wear all that clothing. is. I was about to say like a sport that doesn't involve a bikini. Yeah. Yeah. Like beach volleyball or something like that. Not that we don't love bikinis, but you no. know. No, all athletes are great athletes, but traditionally I would say skiers are not as heavily sexualized, I would hope. I would agree on that opinion. Um, The fourth woman is Paloma Elsesser, excuse me. Um, She is also a model. She became influential for speaking out about being a plus size black multiracial woman in fashion. Yes. So she is kind of cool because she also brings the plus size element to the brand, which we know they really didn't accommodate for people who are not size zeros beforehand. So this is a good change too for them. Um, So this is another traditional model, but it is cool that she brings the plus size element as well as being, you know, multiracial. So, and she's 29 years old, so not old by any means, but not 17 either. So um, our fifth woman is, I think you know her, Priyanka Chopra. Actress and pageant queen. She's also married to Nick Jonas. She is Indian and American and she is 38 years old. So we all know how gorgeous she is. And that's kind of why I was like, sure, Jan, about the fact that they're not recruiting based off appearance, because again, all of these women are gorgeous, but Mm -hmm. every woman is gorgeous. I was about to say, yeah, like beauty, beauty, quote unquote, is so subjective. Like you really gonna be out here in the press realm saying like yeah we hired an ugly bitch like no you're not <laughs> like yeah, not not hardly um so yes Priyanka is joining the BS Collective as number five number six this is where we get a little bit more into pride as well Valentina Sampio she is a model and she was the first openly transgender model for Victoria's Secret and Sports Illustrated. Yeah. So she was the first one to, they did sign her, This she was kind of part of their original movement to make the brand more inclusive. Um, you know, she was obviously assigned a man at birth and decided to make that transition. So she was the first person to model for both of these brands, which are traditionally just so, you know, sex-driven. Cishet. Yeah. yeah thank you I couldn't remember the word you used earlier but um so yeah and she's so that's, that's really cool she's a, yeah she's absolutely gorgeous so that's that's a huge um contribution to kind of see somebody like that from the LGBTQ community especially the trans community you know with this label so pretty cool in my opinion she is Brazilian and she's 24 years old and a big time model so and then my personal favorite um the seventh and final member of the VS Collective is pro soccer player Megan Rapino. She's a three-time World Cup champion. 
an LGBTQ plus advocate, and she is out and proud as a lesbian woman and has been for a while. Um, she also has purple hair, which is iconic. Yes. Uh, she's 35 years old, and her with that arms up, are you not entertained look after she scored that goal. And when she was like, I ain't going to the and White House back in the World Cup when they won in France um, in 2019, she's just iconic and she's she's funny. And I, I she's my um, personal, I guess, favorite of these seven. But they, they all seem like very cool ladies who bring a little something different to the table. And I'm glad that they're giving a more well-rounded collective of, you know, women. Yeah. And I will say... Um... I love Megan Rapino, like period, but I I never find her hotter than when she's playing soccer. Yeah, that's like fair. like when she's at like press conferences, I'm like, oh, you look good. But like when she's on the field, like no makeup and just like sweating. Like there was a gift that went around during um, the World Cup where during like the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, most people had their hand over her over their hearts, and she just kind of like the camera like panned to her. And she kind of did this like motion, like, like, and winked. And then she turned around. I don't know. Something awoke within me when I saw that gift. (laughs) So it was so hot. I was like, hi, how are you, miss? I know you're married, but. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's fabulous. And just an incredible athlete, three-time world cup champion. I mean, like she's, she's fun to watch for sure. And I, I think there's definitely something like sexy about seeing people do what they love and what they're good at you know absolutely so very cool that is all I have for us this week do you have anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this up not really I was going to mention Nick Cannon but I got it in there (laughs) in the middle of your story so somebody needs to just like send him some some rubbers I don't know yes this is his fourth child within a year or what will be, and his seventh overall. That's a lot. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the all the four recent ones are all with different women, aren't they? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Which I mean, no tea, no shade. You know, do what you want in your spare time. But yeah, it's a lot of children. Do what you want, but it's a lot of kids around. It is. is I think I found the gif, and I'm gonna send it to you. Me <laughs> too. All right. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed our stories and our continued Pride project. I guess we probably will have one more episode during Pride Month before we move into July. So enjoy it while you can. And we hope everybody has a wonderful week. Thank you. Yay!